Well, thanks again for being here. We're glad you're at Grace this morning. How many of the guys were at Beast Feast last night? What, we had a great time there. It was good stuff. I know a lot of you didn't get to go, and of course all the ladies are telling us, hey, what about us? But So we're going to give you just a, a sample of, of what that was like last night. Doesn't that look like fun? We, we had almost just right at 400 people there, 400 men last night, and over 100 men who didn't go to Grace, non-church people, so we were just pumped about it. Hey, I would like to thank all of you. Hey, if you helped out at Beast Feast, would you stand up for a moment? Just stand up. Nobody helped out. Uh, here we go. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we appreciate all these guys. Uh, of course... Uh, Pastor Tim, he, he took the lead and put in a lot of time to make it happen, did a great job of planning. And then, boy, some of the guys like Ed Spriggs and John Wookie and uh, Tim Soul, these guys put in a, a lot of time to make that happen. They, they were started cooking on Thursday. I mean, it was, uh, it was really something, just a, a great, great time together. Did you see, I don't know if you saw in the video, John going after something with like a, a little saw? Did you see that power saw? It was an armadillo tail that he was working on. I don't know if you saw that, but anyway, cool stuff. Um, we plan on doing that again maybe in about a year or so, but uh, it was just a great time uh, together doing all that. We, uh, we're in a series called Genius, Encountering Jesus, and we noticed that when people encountered Jesus, they were always surprised. He always said something that, you know, just they had never heard before, uh, everybody reacted to Jesus in a different way. And last night I was talking to the guys just very briefly. And I pointed out that if Jesus were here, we would be pummeling Jesus with questions, right? Could you imagine if Jesus was walking the planet today and, and, and then he said, Hey, Grace Community, I'll be here on Tuesday night at 7 to answer any questions. I mean, we'd start thinking of questions, right? We'd all come in. We'd be asking him questions. And no doubt... He'd be asked all types of questions. But my, what, what I'm asking you is, what would your number one question be? If you could ask Jesus anything on Tuesday night at 7, what would you ask? J just tell somebody sitting next to you. All right. Unless, unless you're sitting next to your spouse and it's a marriage question, just hold off on that and come up, go with your second question. I think I know the number one question that he would be asked of everyone. I think the, the question that he would be asked most often of all is, is really the most important and the most practical question for all of us, and that is, what do you have to do to go to heaven? How do you go to heaven? I mean, that's eternal. 
That, that's eternal. That's eternity. That's really more important than anything we can even ask here. What do we do to spend eternity with you? How does that happen? And actually, uh, there's a man in the Bible that asked Jesus this very question. And I think God wants us to know the answer to this because this question was asked to the most famous person in history, Jesus Christ, and three eyewitnesses recorded how it happened in the New Testament, which happens to be the best-selling book of all time, the best-selling book today, the most popular book in the world. I think God wants us to know this information. And when Jesus answered the question that this man asked, the answer shocked the guy. And it totally shocked the disciples who were standing around. Everybody's like, whoa. The answer surprised everybody. And then after he answered, the man who asked the question left Jesus totally bummed out. That's the story we're going to look at today. It's in Mark chapter 10, and uh, I invite you to turn there, and basically here's what I want us to notice in this story. The guy asked the best question he could ask. Jesus gives him an answer that's total genius, but the guy leaves bummed, and he leaves bummed because of three reasons, and it's those three reasons I want to look at. First of all, he's bummed because Jesus destroys uh, his religious thinking, his religious views. Jesus destroys the man's religious views. Think about it. We all think we kind of know some of these answers. This guy kind of thought he knew maybe what Jesus would say or at least kind of maybe which direction he would go. And by the way, this is a very moral guy, a very upright guy, a guy that was really well thought of in the community, a guy that was financially secure. He had a lot of things going for him. He was young. He just, he had a lot of stuff going. He was kind of on top of the world guy, but he knows he's missing something. So we asked Jesus this most important question, and then he's bummed when he leaves. And the number one reason is because Jesus destroys his religious views. And we see that in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. So first thing I want us to notice here is Jesus destroys in this conversation, will destroy this man's religious views. He, he will come up to this guy and he, he's going to answer this man in a way that sort of totally changes how this guy views things. And he does it in a couple of different ways. First of all, his answer challenges this man's definition of goodness. 
He approaches Jesus. He has a very respectful address for Jesus. Good teacher. Kind of unusual. A, a very respectful address. And then Jesus uses that, although it was real nice, Jesus uses that to point out to the guy that his standard of goodness, the way he views goodness, is defective. And he says, you know, what, what do you call me, good? And, and that would be the same as true today. We, we talk about people all the time today, and, and we might say something like, hey, he was a good man. Especially hear this stuff at funerals, he was a good man. And we know what we mean by that. We mean he was a great guy. We don't mean he was perfect or he didn't have any flaws. We just mean hey, all around kind of a great guy. But this is what Jesus is kind of getting at. He's saying, hey, think about goodness. No doubt this guy, he's sincere as he addresses Jesus as good. And this guy's coming across to everybody. He has a very... Uh, he's very respected in the community. Everybody would point to this man who's asking Jesus a question as a good guy. But Jesus points out only God is good. And uh, ironically, Jesus is God in the flesh. The man doesn't know that. He, he hasn't grasped that yet. But Jesus basically said, well, no one's good for God. Ironically, the only good man is, is who is answering this question. And basically, as Jesus attacks his definition of goodness, Jesus is telling him, no one is worthy. No one's good except for God. We've all got flaws, he's saying. The problem is, people in general, people in our day, people then, have a hard time seeing themselves as unworthy. And I think it's because we spend a lot of our time trying to, to show people around us that we are worthy or that we're anything but unworthy. And, but what Jesus is, is telling us, there's some stuff kind of packed in here by implication. And that is, if nobody's worthy, then that means we all deserve to be punished for sin, that we've all done things wrong. And if, if there's true justice in the universe, that we'll, we'll have to pay a price for that. And people don't, don't want to see it that way. And then actually there's another step, and that is people don't want to view themselves as unworthy to where they ought to be punished, especially unworthy where they should be punished for an eternity. So you have this, this whole concept that Jesus is confronting this man with and he's trying to get him to think. And the deal is we all downplay our own sinfulness. We downplay the seriousness of, of the things that we do wrong. And we can see that how we talk every day. When we talk about our own sin, a lot of times we use words like, well, it, it was, it was, I made some mistakes, it was a lapse in judgment, I've had some indiscretions. We acknowledge we're not perfect, but, we, but we're basically maintaining that at the core, we're pretty good people, we're, we're decent and because of that, we a lot of times have this feeling that we deserve for good things to happen to us. How many times have you heard somebody say, when something bad happened to them, I don't deserve, I didn't deserve this? Have you ever heard people say that? I hear people say that a lot. Wow, some tragedies happen, and some people say, wow, I didn't deserve this. But really... We do deserve it. We really don't deserve anything good because we violated God's command. 
Anything good that's in our lives, that's all grace. It's all a gift. It's all from God. Anything good is. And so people kind of have a struggle with that. And Jesus is coming right, right to this. And he's forcing the man to rethink his idea of goodness. And then Jesus, the next thing he does... He introduces the topic of goodness, says you got a defective view, and then he brings the man, he reminds him of God's standard of goodness, which is the law. And then he pulls out some commandments from the second half of the Ten Commandments. He says, you know the commandments, and he starts saying them. You know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. He kind of goes down them. And then, it, and he's reminding the man, here is the standard of goodness. And then very interestingly, the man responds, got that. I've done that. And, and, and we're all thinking, wow, this guy, I, I'm surprised he did that. God points him to the standard and the guy's saying, I got it because I think we kind of get, boy, Jesus had a lot to say about these commandments that sometimes we miss. Maybe this guy didn't hear it, but Jesus had already taught on the commands, and he basically, in teaching on the commands, said, we kind of see commandments, uh, God's standard, and we see it as kind of an external standard, what we do, but Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, early in his ministry, the most famous sermon that he gave, he taught us that really the whole Ten Commandments are about our heart, it's internal. And so that's why back, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 5, in, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, for example, he said in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, these are the commandments that were already old, you know, had been a over a thousand years. You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. You've already heard that. Everybody hearing Jesus, yeah, they, they know that. But Jesus continues, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So all of a sudden Jesus said, you've heard that you're not supposed to murder, but I'm telling you, if you even hate somebody in your heart, if you just don't like them, if you call them names, that is breaking the command, and that's breaking the command so bad that you deserve eternal separation from God. Blew people away. He's saying it's not just external, internal. And then Jesus continues, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus is saying we've misunderstood the commands. We view them as things we can keep externally, but God and Jesus is reminding us to keep God's standard. It's really more than just the external. We have to deal with the heart. Because if we're lusting, that's just a sin of the heart that leads to the external sin of adultery. And he confronts us with that. What's interesting is when the guy says, hey, I've done that. When the guy says, 
I, I've, I've took it, you know, good news. I've kept those commands from since I was little I've kept those commands. We would expect that maybe Jesus would revert back to the Sermon on the Mount and sort of teach him about the finer points of the law and how that really we have to keep it internally as well as externally, but Jesus doesn't do that. For this guy, Jesus just cuts right to the chase. He gets right to the heart of the matter and he tells the guy without even explaining the law, he just takes the guy's answer. Hey, I've done that. Okay, what about this? And that brings us to the second reason this guy walked away from Jesus bummed out. First, remember, was Jesus destroyed his religious view. Then, when he didn't, when he turned and pointed what exactly was wrong in his life, second thing, Jesus got personal. Jesus got personal. Jesus could have gone academic on him. Well, you don't really understand the law. The law is, you know, you got to keep it internally as well as... Jesus doesn't do that. He gets personal. He cuts right to the chase and he says, okay, you think you've kept the law? Then here's the deal. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. That's what happens next in verse 21. Mark 10, verse 21. Looking at him... Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possession, all you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So rather than get into the academic, Jesus goes personal on him, probably offended the guy. Think how many times, a lot of times we'll talk to people about God, and then they'll want to go academic, which is fine. We, you know, people have questions, and it's a rational faith, and we're okay with that. We'll, we'll deal with, with science and origins and just all those things, the problem of evil. We love answering those questions. That's a great conversation to have. But sometimes you'll talk to somebody like for a year answering these questions, and they'll just search for one more academic question. At some point... It has to get personal. Does that make sense? Academic, that's fine. We love that. But at some point, here Jesus just skips the academic part, which sometimes he does. He goes straight to the man's heart and he says, here's your issue. You think you've, commit, you've kept the commands, and I've mentioned some on the back half, but God's not first in your life, the very first commandment. You don't even have that. Because your wealth is more important to you than God. He doesn't have the academic debate. points him right to what's at the center of his life. Got real personal. You know, a lot of times I pull out the, the bicycle wheel. And, and all the spokes. And, and I compare it to our life. And this is how our life is. And just all these little things that we have going on in our life. But then... When we become a believer, we have whatever, there's always something in the center. When we become a believer, it has to be Jesus in the center. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's pointing out to the guy, okay, sell, sell everything, give to the poor, come, follow me. Because Jesus knows something else is in the center of his life. And he confronts him on it. Now notice, Jesus talked to a whole lot of people about what they needed to do to be right before God. And, you know, he gave sermons. 
No other time did Jesus tell somebody, and he also talked to other rich people too. No other time did Jesus tell a man, you need to sell everything and come and follow me. Sell it, give it to the poor and follow me. He didn't tell that to anybody else. Why this guy? Because Jesus is genius and Jesus knows that for this man, this is his issue. This wealth is what's more important to him than God. That's what's in the center. That's what has to go for him to be able to follow God. He loved riches more than God. It's not a universal thing, guys, sell everything. What's universal here is that God has to be the most important thing in your life. And that brings us to third reason. First, Jesus crushes his religious views. Second, Jesus gets personal and just strikes him right at the heart. And then Jesus calls him to a point of decision regarding repentance. And no, I say repentance, I'm going to define that. But basically, Jesus calls him to a point of decision. And that decision is really all about repentance, which I will explain. We see that in verse 22. It says, but at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He had a lot of stuff, and he goes away bummed. He brings him to this point, and Jesus basically is teaching him that repentance is necessary for salvation. Repentance, kind of a religious word, but repentance means... It's actually two Greek words that have been shoved together. It means that we change our mind. And so in this case, it's change our mind about Jesus. It's a change of mind that causes a change of behavior where instead of living for ourselves, we start to follow Jesus. A change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. That's what repentance is technically. But we get this especially in churches and stuff, we get this confused. So I want to deal with some things. First of all, I want to just remind us of what repentance is not. Okay, Repentance is not simply praying a prayer for salvation. Now, nothing wrong with praying for salvation. Don't get me wrong. But repentance is more than just spoken words, right? Repentance is a heart issue. So in addition, we're just praying to God. And a lot of times when we describe it around here to come to Christ, we say, you got to trust in Christ. And I'll get to that a moment, in a moment. And then ask him to come into your life and help you to follow him. That's the repentance part. To help you to where you're at in life to turn and follow God. So it's trust, it's repentance. That's, that's the way it's always been. But it's not just words. It's a heart thing. That's, so repentance is not simply a prayer of words. It's expressing submission of our heart. Also, repentance is not feeling sorry for our sin. There's a lot of reasons people can feel sorry for their sin that doesn't include repentance. They could be sorry that they got caught. They could be sorry because of whatever, you know, whatever the fallout from that is. They could be sorry because of self-pity. There's a lot of reasons to be sorry, but it doesn't always, you could just be regretful. Those emotions can lead to repentance, 
But those emotions in and of themselves do not equal repentance. Because you can feel sorry for stuff but not have a repentant heart. Just like, oh, bummer that that happened. Also, repentance is not confessing our sin. Now, confessing our sin is necessary in a general way. We have to admit that we're sinners. Confessing is just admitting. Confessing our sin is just admitting that we're sinners, that we've all done things that God does not want us to do, that we've all broken the Ten Commandments, for example. To say, I admit it, that's confessing. And confessing is good and it's necessary, but it's not repentance because we can say, hey, I admit I've done wrong, but not want to change, not want to follow God. So there's no repentance. You have confession, I admit it, yeah, I did that, I know you don't want me to do that. But if it's not followed up with, I don't want to do that anymore, help me not to do it, then it's confession without repentance. That makes sense? Also, Repentance is not getting religious. Repentance is not, hey, well now, you know, I've repented, so here I am at church, so I'm coming to church, I'm doing the church thing. As a matter of fact, sometimes religious stuff, people do that so they don't have to repent. A lot of times, people do religious stuff so they can feel good about themselves and their relationship with God, but still keep God at an arm's length distance so they can feel good without being close to God just by going through religious motions. Repentance is not getting religion. And one more thing. Repentance is not partial surrender. And this is key. Repentance is not partial surrender. Repentance is not, hey God, I'm putting my trust in Christ. Come into my life. Help me to follow you. And I, and I fully intend to follow you in most of these areas. No, repentance is a desire to follow in every area. A desire to follow in all areas. It's recognizing that he is in charge, that, that he's over us, that we need to deny our very selves. We need to put God in the center of our life. Following Jesus is not like following somebody on Twitter where you can check out all their thoughts for a while, then you get tired of it and you move on to something else. Following Jesus is he's the center of your life. And he has authority over your life. It's, it's a completely different thing. If Jesus comes in to our life and he's not Lord of all, you know, as the saying goes, he's not Lord at all. He's not Lord if he's not Lord of everything. And, and I know when I say this, it can be a little confusing because you might be a little overwhelmed and you're thinking, whoa, hold it, Kevin. If you're saying repentance is making him Lord of your life over everything, well, nobody lives that way. Nobody lives a perfect life. Nobody stops sinning. Nobody keeps Jesus first all the time. We, we just don't live that way. We, we just can't do that. And, and that's right. Repentance is not perfection. We see that in the pages of Scripture. It wasn't for Peter. Peter made mistakes. He, he sinned. It wasn't for Paul. Paul, he's going, what is going on? I got a war inside of me. On, I know I should be doing what God wants me to do, but I got these fleshly desires to do something else, and I find myself doing those things. It wasn't for David in the Old Testament. We get repentance is not perfection. So what is repentance? 
It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior where we understand God is our authority. God is over us. It, repentance is not the absence of struggle. Repentance is the absence of settled defiance. Repentance is where we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of everything as just a matter of who He is. Repentance means when you come to a disagreement with Jesus, and it could be about, it could be about finances like this guy, it could be about something in our culture like homosexuality or same-sex marriage, or it could be anger or pride or just any, whatever it is. When we, repentance is when we come to a disagreement with Jesus, we know Jesus is right and we are wrong. That's repentance. It's not the absence of struggle. It's that our trajectory is always toward him. We know he's right. We've already determined who the winner of the argument is. It's Jesus, not us. Because we recognize that he's the one who gets to decide what's right and wrong. We don't get to decide that. Jesus, God, decides that. He's Lord. He makes the rules. He reveals to us what's right and what's wrong. So we follow him. We make him Lord in that way. And when we say he's Lord, but we, we don't, we think we have some better thoughts, or maybe some of that's outdated or whatever, then that's when Jesus turns to people and it shocks us and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? This is what Jesus is addressing. In another area, it's the issue of repentance. And so while we continue as repentant people to wrestle with our divided hearts, our trajectory has been set, the winner of the argument's been declared, we struggle toward the goal, but underneath the struggle is knowing that Jesus is, is always right and we're yielded to Him and we will follow where He leads. Our flesh resists His authority but our mind, our heart consents to his authority. That's the struggle. That's how Paul sees repentance. That's why in Romans 7.15 he can write, For what I'm doing I don't understand. For what I'm not practicing, for I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And so we're constantly in the struggle of keeping out things from creeping into the center of our life. And we battle it. And the battle rages and it continues. Repentance is a, de a desire to know and follow Christ. Or sometimes when you're really struggling, you know, I'll be talking to somebody and I'm saying, well, true repentance, it's at least the desire. You know, they'll say, well, how can I desire to follow Christ when I'm struggling so much? I mean, I want to follow him, but I keep struggling, so maybe I don't want to follow him in this area. I don't know why it's and then to that person I'll say, repentance is the, the desire to have a desire to follow Christ in every area. So what you know is right. Now what's interesting is at the end of this story, after the guy leaves, Jesus makes a comment how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Stuns his disciples again. That here's where they start asking follow-up questions. Well, who, who, 
because they viewed, well, if a guy, and like we do sometimes, if a guy's just knocking it out of the park, if he's wealthy, if he's made it big time, that seems like for a lot of people that's an indication of, of God's favor. And then he, he throws out that saying, it's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, which should scare all of us because by the world's standards, we're all rich. If you drove a vehicle here and you have a house to stay in, you're in the top five wealthiest people in the world, top 5%. How hard it is. Harder for a rich man to go to heaven than a camel to go through. And then we've had theologians come along and say, oh, well, when he said camel, well, there's actually a word for rope that is a lot like the word camel, and we think it's rope through an eye of a needle. Or then somebody, oh, when he said eye of the needle, there's actually, we think that might have been a gate that people could walk through, but it wasn't really for riders, and so a camel could like kneel down and kind of get through it. It was difficult. That is, there's no evidence of that gate. And the, the word for rope and camel aren't that much similar, you know. That, the whole point of what Jesus is saying is it's impossible. He says later, it's impossible, but what's impossible with men is possible with God. So here's what he's telling all of us. He's saying, rich or poor, whoever you are, none of us are worthy. None of us deserve anything from God. Everything he gives us is grace. And it's impossible for us to earn God's favor. But God has done the impossible for us by allowing his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who answered this man's question and later voluntarily allowed himself to be tortured to death in payment for our sins. He made a way. With God, all things are possible. And it's no longer impossible for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And so how does that happen in our life? It happens through repentance. The way we normally say it is it happens when we understand that's confession. We admit we're sinners. That's part. We understand we have our faith in Jesus. That means we believe He's who He said He was, Son of God, and we trust that what He did, dying on the cross, was enough to pay for our sins, and it is. We place our trust in Christ and Christ alone, and we invite God to come into our life and help us to live his way. That's, re that's the repentance part. That's where we come to God with this submission of God, you know better than I do. Help me to follow you in every area of my life. And the struggle begins. Because even though we've consented mentally and even though our heart is there, our flesh is weak. But here's my question. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you placed your trust in Jesus and put him first in your life? Because Jesus is telling us it's impossible to come to Christ without repentance. It's impossible to come to Christ and have something else in the center of our life. 
because that's a place that only God can have. And so the question is, have you ever made that decision? Because if your repentance was just partial, hey, I believe who Jesus is, he died for my cross, and I'm good for that, he died for my sins, and God, I want you to help me live and follow you in most areas. Jesus would say that that's not enough. And if we weren't willing to give that up, we would walk away just like this guy did. Not liking it, that he crushed our religious views, he got personal, and then he pushed us to a decision on repentance. And we walk away. Is Christ the Lord of your life? And so if you're not sure about that, if you can't think back to a time, and I don't mean that you have the date and time written down, and although a lot of people do that, just are you looking back on your life and realizing that, yeah, I put Christ in the center. It, it's a struggle. I got things creeping in there all the time, but God's the center. I get that. But, it, but if you're thinking, wow, I, I came to Christ, but it was always conditional, and I knew this one area of my life I was never going to let him touch, never put under his submission. This was my area just for me, whether it's finances, sexuality, or anything else, power. If you've done that, Jesus would say, that's not good enough. That's what the rich man was doing. I'd like us all to bow our heads, and if you're not sure, I would like to lead you in a prayer, and you can just pray silently, make it your prayer. Again, it's not the words that you think to God. It, it's the submission of your heart that you would truly trust in Jesus and submit to him in every area. He, he's the boss of your whole life. And maybe you'd express that like this. Father in heaven, I, I totally understand that I violated your commands internally, if not externally. And I violated a bunch externally too. And because of that, Father, I understand that I deserve punishment in a just universe from a just and holy God. And that that punishment is worse than I even want to think about separation from you forever is what I deserve but you love me and you made what's impossible for me possible through you and so right now God I not only admit my sin but I'm placing my trust in, in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation I have nothing else to offer it's just what Jesus did I have no good works. It's just what Jesus did. And God, I'm asking you to come into my life and help me to follow you in every area of my life. I want to follow you in repentance. God, thanks for loving me at such great cost, the death of your son. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.
while our heads are still bowed, I'd just, just like to ask, I don't want to embarrass anybody, we just ask so we know how to pray as a church leadership. And so if you, if as far as you know, today was the first day that you came to God offering Him leadership of your whole life, submitting to Him in every area with the intention of not holding anything back, making Him Lord of all, that that's your desire. I, I would like for you to just hold your hand up, make kind of just you look up, see me, thank you. Where I can see your hand and just kind of acknowledge you. Just hold it up, thanks. And let me, let me spot you, thank you. Right down here front, thanks. Thanks. Anyone else? And once you put it up, you can put it back down. But just try to see that, that I saw you. Anyone else? How about in the back? Maybe I would say, hey, Kevin, I'm giving God everything. Uh, I see you. Thanks. Anyone else? I see you. Thank you. See all three of you. Thanks. See you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Anyone else? See ya. Thanks. Anyone else before I close? Just so we can pray for you. It's the most important decision. I appreciate Appreciate you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all these uh, tender hearts. Lord, uh, and we know when somebody responds to you, that, that's your spirit working in their life. Father, we're all unworthy, but yet you love us. We deserve nothing, yet you drench us with your love and your grace. Father, we pray especially for these who indicated uh, that they've turned to you today, making you Lord of their life. And God, help all of us who have made that decision. to be serious about keeping you in the center of our lives, about living out our lives in trust and obedience, Lord, wanting to follow you, not perfection, but just always having the desire to follow you in every single area, not keeping anything in our lives more important than you. And Lord, if we discover those things creeping into the center of our lives, help us to have the wisdom to deal with it. And Lord, convict us about that through your spirit so that we could see it and we could deal with that and put you back on the throne of our life. I thank you for grace and thank you for Grace Community Church as we can come together and uh, look at your word. God, thanks for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.